Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In season one of Lost Hills, I spent a lot of time describing the geographical features of the killing zone, where Anthony Rauta allegedly hunted victims in their cars, in a hammock, and in a tent. It's raw and wild with windy roads, sheer drop-offs, cliffs, and peaks. There are also neighborhoods tucked in there, and a huge white Hindu temple. And behind the Hindu temple, down a long road, is a private school called Muse. It's all vegan, fashion-based learning, which is pretty cool. It's very open. It's in an old campground area, so it's a very, very open area attached to the hills. Muse attracts a specific kind of parent. Some people come to the school because they really, truly believe that passion-based learning is the best way to do it. Some families come because they uh, really are passionate about the vegan lifestyle because the school is vegan. And then other families come because they know that they will get uh, privacy for their families and their lifestyles are more publicly known. The school was co-founded by Susie Amos Cameron, the wife of James Cameron, as in Avatar, Titanic, Terminator. And privacy is important there. That's why I can't say this former teacher's name. When she was hired, she had to sign an NDA. Well, just we have some wealthier families or families that are in the movie business or entertainment business. If there's one thing I've learned while spending time as a reporter in Malibu, it's that privacy has a close cousin. It's called secrecy. And in the months leading up to Anthony Rauta's arrest, Muse School had a secret. But this former teacher didn't know much about it. Until one day, a couple of homicide detectives showed up at her door. I'm Dana Goodyear, and this is a Lost Hills bonus episode. 
Signs of Anthony. Before the detectives, there was chatter at school. We didn't have any faculty meetings or staff meetings about it. It was just occasionally faculty members would talk with each other about like, hey, this went missing, or did you hear about this? The murder of Tristan Bodad at Malibu Creek State Park and the proliferation of stories about other shootings in the area, that had all happened over the summer. But the teacher doesn't remember anyone talking much about it on campus. It seems weird to me. There was a murderer at large. The cops had very few leads. But at Muse, across the road from the murder scene, all the administration was talking about was a couple of missing iPads, which they didn't seem too concerned about. If we did have meetings about it, it would just be a side note like, hey, if you took any of the iPads home, please let us know and bring them back. But there were other weird things happening, and the staff was starting to notice. We knew that stuff had been more than once taken from the kitchen because we have an on-site staff, staff members who cook lunch for the kids every day and provide snack every day. And things had been taken from the kitchens, and no staff member was taking quantities of food. That fall, other businesses near the park began to notice missing items, breakfast sandwiches and snacks. Images were captured on a security camera of a man with a backpack and something sticking out of it, a rifle. Later on, people started talking about how there was somebody who was just loose in the wilderness, who was just walking around. And then at one point, one of the operations members said that they had seen somebody on one of the hiking trails with like a backpack and something in the backpack. That's when people like through rumors and talking with each other, not in big meetings, but just talking with each other kind of started connecting dots that it was probably the same person. Then in October, Anthony Rauda was arrested at his camp a couple of miles from Muse. As I described in an earlier episode, Rauda had seven electronic devices. Investigators pulled a ton of data from them. Locations, search histories, PDFs. That's all a big part of the case against him. But they also found something else. And this has never been made public. Until now. In one of the cell phones, they discovered the name, phone number, and a home address for this former teacher from Muse School I've been talking to. So I didn't really know much about it at first, and then I was contacted by a detective on the phone, and they called me and they said that they'd like to speak to me about something. And then later that day, they showed up at my door, him and his partner, and they just started asking me some questions, and they asked if I had known about him, and then told me that he had my phone number and my first name and my maiden name in his phone and my old address, and I was kind of shocked. And then I asked if this was the same person who did the killings, and they asked why. I was wondering that, and I said, well, I work right across the street from where those things were happening. And then they were like, oh, okay. The next day, the teacher went to the administration. As soon as I got to work, I immediately went and scheduled a meeting with our HR person. It's worth noting that a representative for Susie Amos Cameron declined to answer questions about any of this. I 
told them that this had happened, that the detectives might want to come on site to talk to me again if they had more questions, which the detective had mentioned might be a possibility. And that's when I was told that some files had been gotten into by someone and that mine was one of them. So then how did you feel? Really scared. (laughs) We knew about things being taken from the kitchen, but that was only from word of mouth and that our personal information could have been seen by who knows who was really scary. Finally, the story started to come out and it was even creepier than the teacher had feared. It turns out that the three people whose information he ended up having, we are all three female, we all have dark hair, and we all have glasses, which felt, I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but it felt really, really unnerving to figure that part out. So you felt like it could be something specific to you? It did feel kind of like that. I mean, but it's like, how would he even know who's who? But if he didn't have everybody's information, why would he just have our three information? It's a very unnerving feeling. The teacher says the experience of teaching in Malibu Canyon changed her. I think a culture where secrets are kept and willingly kept is not a great culture to have. She left Muse and went to work at a school in the city where you have to show an ID before you get buzzed in. That feels safe. But she still has no idea what to make of her brush with Anthony Rauda. So it's just kind of in the back of my head, like, what was going to happen? Will something happen? If he ever gets out, is something going to happen? Do I need to move again or change my name or change my number? Why did he choose her? What did he want? In this creepy and mysterious way, he'd made contact without actually connecting. Like when you pick up the phone and there's someone on the line but they don't make a sound. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com lost today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot lost. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisions History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. 
First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point. The market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. years trying to find someone who actually knew Anthony Rauta, who would talk to me about him, share an anecdote or story or anything. Then, after the first couple episodes of the show came out, I got a call. So I'm going to try not to say your name, because I know we're not using your name, but you're Anthony Rauta's younger sister, right? Yes, half-sister. I knew about her. Ozzy's youngest child. She's from his second marriage, the family he started after Anthony and his older siblings moved away to Florida. She's in her 20s, and she still lives with Ozzy and her mom. So I always knew growing up that I had two half-brothers and a half-sister. We had a big age gap. 
The family was fractured. She still never met her older sister, Lisa, the one whose door I knocked on in episode five. And she doesn't really know her older brother, Michael. But Anthony, the most mysterious of her siblings, ironically, he's the one she spent the most time with. Growing up, Anthony would sometimes stay at our house. He would live with us for short periods of time, on and off. And I did know growing up that he he liked to stay to himself. He was more of an outdoorsman. And he liked to basically kind of be isolated and live out in the wilderness. By now, Rauda's little sister says, a lot of people have seen images of her brother in a spit mask and restraint chair, heard him spouting off and swearing at his lawyer and the judge. But no one is representing the Anthony she knows, gentle, shy Anthony. So it's up to her. My recollection starts around maybe eight or nine years old. I I was always excited because growing up, I was an only child. Um, in my household. So knowing that I had a half-brother or half-brothers, I was really excited and I wanted to interact. But he was just really quiet. So I couldn't really form that brotherly-sisterly bond. Whereas, you know, if you live in the same household, you interact every day, you get to know each other, right? But I wasn't able to do that. He was just more reserved. So I would just do my own thing, and then he would do his own thing. She describes an unusual arrangement, where Anthony didn't really interact with her or her mom. He spoke almost exclusively to Ozzy. She would, though, see these fleeting glimpses of the big brother she wanted. I remember one instance where we had just gone grocery shopping, all four of us. So my dad, my mom, myself, and Anthony. And we were coming into the house, and for some reason, I didn't want to help with the groceries. And Anthony was very quick to tell me, no, you need to go out there, you need to help. That's what we do, we help. So I guess that, in a way, explains his character of always trying to help, always trying to be helpful, and I guess be responsible in the sense where, you know, we're always doing the right thing by our parents. And when you're living in someone else's house, you always try to help out as much as you can. I ask her to think of some more memories of Anthony relaxed and comfortable. It takes her a minute, but there was one time when Anthony was staying with them and their cousin came over. My cousin Eric was reminiscing about them growing up and Anthony got this big smile on his face and was just laughing about whatever they were reminiscing on. I don't remember specifically the topic or the childhood memory, but I do remember Anthony just laughing with a big smile on his face. As she got older, she puzzled over why her brother chose to be alone. I mean, Anthony, he's a good-looking man. You know, when he's cleaned up, when he would live with us, he was cleaned up. He was clean-shaven, very polite. He had manners. So to me, it was like, okay, when are you going to have a girlfriend, you know? But that's right around the time when he would leave and then he would come back. So 
that was the pattern. In spite of Ozzy's best efforts, Anthony was always on the way out. And when Anthony would disappear again, Ozzy still wanted to look after him. They're, I wouldn't say close, but they're how a father and son would act, like a long-distance father-son relationship, you know. When someone who's living off the grid like that, they try to stay in touch as much as they can, like check-in-wise. Hey, you're doing okay? Yeah. Do you need any money? Sure. And my dad would send money. I would say he grew accustomed to Anthony living that wilderness lifestyle, being on his own. He knew that Anthony liked that. So he just wanted to do the best he could and give him any type of support that he could, whether it be financially or emotionally. Sometimes that meant going out and tracking him down in the middle of nowhere. I remember times when my my dad would tell me that he hadn't heard from Anthony, so we would go driving around looking for him. Ozzy and his little girl searching the mountains, driving slowly down back roads, scanning the brush for any sign of Anthony. I remember one time we went, I don't even remember the city, but we went to go eat sushi. And I remember it was a long drive. We went up to this dirt road and we were just looking and I and I believe he got a phone call or somehow, but we ended up meeting up with Anthony. And I know that we gave him some food and some clothes. And after that, we just went our separate ways. But her brother wasn't just moving back and forth between the mountains and her childhood home. He was also in and out of jail and prison. I remember my dad receiving a letter from Anthony, um, and it had all this great artwork on it. I think it was flowers, and I believe one was a hummingbird. It was beautiful, all the details. So this was another side of Anthony, the artwork and the problems. I would remember my dad would go and visit Anthony. So that's when I became aware that he was getting in trouble with the law. I would just think, "Uh uh-oh, he's getting into some trouble. I wouldn't say dangerous stuff, but I would just say trouble because they wouldn't really go into detail with me about what he was being arrested for or anything of that nature. I just knew that we were going to go visit my brother. Did you visit him in jail ever or prison? Uh, We did try to go visit him in prison at Folsom, but we weren't allowed in. But I do remember one visitation where we went and he was in jail. A while back, sitting outside of one of Rauda's hearings, Ozzy told me that sometimes Anthony's problems spilled over into his life and his home. He was living with us, and then there was a span of time where he wasn't. And then next thing we know, my dad was being contacted by the detectives. Me and my mom were home. I think we were in bed. We were waking up. And then my dad comes, and he goes, "Um, the detectives are here. They want to talk. And then next thing we know, our house is being searched. Were you scared? I was just more like, what's going on? I know I had to stay in my room and... I think they had two officers 
if I'm not mistaken. And then they were just talking to me about a piano I had in my room, just basically trying to distract me from whatever was going on. Anthony wasn't there for the raid, but it marked a turning point. I think my mom had some worries, but, you know, she wanted to support her husband and and support my dad's relationship with Anthony. So I think that she was a little more hesitant about if he ever came back to live with us again, that there would be certain rules or to not use our address because of, you know, what would the neighbors think that all these police cars are outside searching the house. Rada's sister tells me she hasn't seen him in a good 10 years. And the current situation, it's bewildering. It's kind of shocking and it's more baffling that he's on trial for these crimes. And it just just seems so out of character from the Anthony that I know. I'm worried for the sake of my dad because I know that he loves Anthony He wants nothing but the best for Anthony. And I know that it hurts him to see how this is going about. So I'm more worried for my dad and his health and his stress and how it's affecting him. I've never seen Anthony yell or get angry. But when I saw it on the news, that was alarming because I've never seen him like that. That, It almost didn't look like him. She doesn't know if he's mentally ill or what's going on. I think his anger is coming from the fact that he's being incarcerated for something that he didn't do. That's where I feel like his anger is coming from. Because from what I know of Anthony, growing up, seeing him being very reserved, very quiet, it doesn't seem like he's capable of something like this. And even to the extent of my father saying, you know, I don't think that he did this because that's not in Anthony's character to do something of that malice. I guess that's where myself and my dad are having that tough time because we don't see Anthony ever being capable of something like this. So the fact that he's being accused of it is just so bizarre to us. And it's just so shocking. Rada's little sister spent her childhood searching for her brother. When they shared a home and when he was out in the wilderness. It seems like she's still searching, trying to get a handle on him and the situation he's in. At the time of this taping, Rada's criminal trial is still on hold while his mental health is being assessed. But it seems like Rada's little sister is hoping for a trial. I'm just more or less shocked by everything that's going on. So that's why I'm curious to see what evidence is going to be brought up in trial and how that's going to come about. I just want to hear it for myself. She wants to support her brother and finally to get some clarity. Is he the gentle person she remembers or the monster she's seen on TV? Which is the truth? For her, it all comes down to a simple either-or. The question is, did he or did he not do it? If she can come to an understanding about that, maybe 
she'll finally understand the person she loves, her brother, who has always been just out of reach. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.